welcome to the latest edition of the EMG Gold podcast. My name is Mark Koskila, Head of Marketing here at EMG Health, and today I am very excited to be joined by Head of Medical Affairs for Oncology at Takeda, Dr. Emily Pegg. As well as being a medical affairs leader, Emily is a GMC registered pharmaceutical physician and has worked across neurology, genetic diseases and oncology. Prior to her time at Takeda, Emily spent over five years with Novartis and held several positions, including medical director for neuroscience within Europe. She also spent time working in Switzerland whilst at Novartis and has a broad experience with and understanding of the European pharmaceutical landscape. Emily has spent the past seven years in senior leadership positions and last year was a guest speaker and workshop leader at the Piper Conference. She's kindly taken some time out of her maternity leave to speak to us today. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, pleased to be here. Great. Well, let's get uh, let's get started. So um, you studied medical sciences at Oxford University, then went on to study medicine at University College London. What were your career aspirations at that point? Were you always planning to work within the pharmaceutical industry? Um, I guess not necessarily, but it was always something that I had an interest in. Um, I, I guess I always saw myself as a little bit different to other medics who are naturally incredibly of the industry um, and I, I didn't have that level of distrust that a lot of people had and still have um, and I guess I always had this idea that although I really liked the idea of medicine and clinical medicine that there might be something else that I'd want to do beyond that. I, I do re- sort of laugh when I remember one of my friends at medical school buying me the book Big Pharma by Jackie Law, um, which was essentially to try and put me off going into the pharmaceutical industry. And that was quite a number of years ago now. So it's quite amusing to think back to that. Um, I guess I guess I deliberated over medicine versus a purer science or a more kind of practical application, something like becoming a paramedic, because it felt like such a long time to study. But medicine offers such a great grounding in the physiological sciences and and really quite a diverse mix of of topics and therapeutic areas so in the end I did opt to to go down the medicine route. I I did do a few things through medical school that I guess were a little bit different because I always had an idea that maybe I would do something that wasn't just straightforward clinical medicine so I did quite a lot of medical writing at Oxford and UCL for student newspapers etc I was the student union president for our junior common room when I was at Oxford. I did an internship at an Indian pharmaceutical company um, and I had a gap year as well during medical school, which is quite unusual, but allowed me to do an internship at the British Medical Journal. And I did an internship with Sky News uh, with the health correspondent there. So in sort of health journalism, if you like. So I, I, I did a few things sort of knowing that I wasn't necessarily thinking of going down your classical medical route and pharmaceuticals really started to emerge as something that was really interesting and exciting. That's um, really interesting and and I guess that must have given you quite a a lot of experience around when you're talking in terms of internships at at Sky News in terms of that kind of writing and and creating kind of communication that, that would work for a range of different audiences. Absolutely. And I, another thing I did in my gap year, which was completely unrelated to medicine, actually, it was it was really to earn money to fund some traveling that I did. But I worked in a marketing company um, in London and I was there as a sort of assistant. But they were marketing things like motorbikes and 
bugaboo prams for children. Um, and actually, do you know, that experience, the combination of the kind of um, editorial journalistic side combined with the marketing experience I got there was so, so valuable. And I don't think I really appreciated it fully at the time. And what was so nice when I applied to the pharmaceutical industry, I was I was interviewing at the same time that I was interviewing for medical roles, so for your classic kind of run through training posts within the NHS. And the NHS was absolutely not interested in anything I had done that was outside of the specialty I was applying for, which I found incredibly demoralising. However, when I went to the pharmaceutical industry, they were fascinated that I'd done editorial internships, that I'd worked in a marketing company, because actually they saw that as really great, diverse background and experience to work in medical affairs. So that was something that really encouraged me to, to make that transition into the industry, because they really saw the value in those quite diverse experiences that I'd had so far. And I guess that, that understanding of how to write for different audiences. So in terms of kind of reverting back to more medical side, so how did your medical training and, and time spent working in a clinical setting helped you in your medical affair roles so far? So I think I think that background in clinical in clinical medicine and in medical school in general is I, I guess I see it as there's two elements that are that are really valuable. The first is really understanding the, the fundamentals of the NHS. Um, and, and, that, and the fundamental understanding of the human body in health and disease, you know, that's really important. Um, so I think the, the, in terms of the fundamentals, the NHS, a lot of it for me, when you're in the pharmaceutical industry, it's really understanding how it works. What is the structure, the function of the NHS? What are referral pathways like for patients? What's the interplay between primary, secondary, tertiary care? What, what are the, you know, what are the real rather than the theoretical patient journeys that patients go through? And I think when you've actually spent time talking to patients who have struggled to get a diagnosis, for example, for years on end or have had really mixed symptoms, it really gives you that insight, which if you just learn it as you kind of learn it in the pharmaceutical industry, you'd think it all should be very straightforward. But when you've actually worked with patients and seen what a challenge it can be to get a diagnosis or to navigate a treatment path for a particular condition, that's really, really valuable. And also some of the other things that I, I think have just been so useful are understanding things like the level of segregation of the health system into different specialties. You know, people think, oh, well, that person's in neurology and that person's in cardiology. So, of course, they'll be able to speak to each other. But, you know, when you've worked in the NHS, that those those departments probably don't talk at all. And so if you have a product that needs cardiology monitoring and it's for a neurology indication, you're, you're going to struggle and you're really going to have to think about how you get that to market. So I do feel like there's a lot of practicalities which you understand if you've just worked in the NHS in any role, um, which are hugely valuable um, to medical affairs. But I think that the second thing is, is really perspective. You know, my last job when I was an, a medic in the NHS was working in a tertiary neurosurgical referral centre in London. And it, it doesn't, I mean, it, it gets pretty stressful at times. There were points at which I looked after 60 patients overnight who were all pretty unwell because they're in a neurosurgical unit and you're having to balance doing a lumbar puncture with someone who's reduced, you know, had reduced consciousness and the nurses are calling you, telling you that you need to come and assess them. And I remember waking up, you know, at home 
when I was out of the hospital setting, just thinking my bleep was going off and waking up with a start. And somehow when you've been through that, it gives you perspective on what really matters. And the industry can be quite high pressure and quite stressful in some ways. But somehow when you've come from that background, it maybe helps you to prioritise whether you should uh, answer that email in the evening or maybe just leave it till the next morning. So I think a little bit of perspective is is, is helpful when you come from that clinical setting. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, so traditionally, communication with healthcare professionals was dominated by sales rep. However, regulations such as the Sunshine Rule have reduced the scope of these interactions. Now, medical affairs often acts as the face of the pharma company. How has this changed the relationship that pharma has with healthcare professionals? Yes, I think this is a really interesting evolving journey and certainly one that had started well before I came into industry. I think, you know, things like the Sunshine Rule and, you know, the the whole sort of um, effort around disclosure of what we pay to healthcare professionals is, is hugely important. You know, I, I personally have never felt conflicted in what I've seen healthcare professionals offer by the industry. I haven't, you know, I've been in the industry for sort of seven, eight years. But I, I see a huge role for these initiatives, which boost healthcare professional and public confidence in pharm- in pharmaceuticals and the industry. And ultimately, the way we interact with healthcare professionals has to be to provide value to them, to the patients, to the rest of the healthcare community. And just giving them, you know, giving them tickets to something to, you know, to go and see a game or something as is the traditional model um, of years gone by is is obviously doesn't just does not stand up in the current climate. But offering them really high quality, um, you know, independent, i.e. non-product related medical education, as well as product related medical education, where you have that expertise is really important and honestly is something that isn't necessarily provided within the NHS. There isn't necessarily the capacity or the resources to provide that. So I do see pharma, uh, the pharma industry as a great provider of high quality medical education. And the key is making sure that we're very clear about what we are providing, you know, whether it's promotional, whether it's non-promotional, um, and how it, you know, how it's actually been planned out and using healthcare professionals to actually deliver that. So I do feel that this, you know, this we're moving towards a more of a collaborative educational relationship as opposed to the more traditional direct selling um, and promoting kind of relationship that we've maybe seen in the past. And I, as I mentioned, I think this is incredibly important for the public perception as well as the healthcare professional perception of the industry. You know, we've seen some talk of the fact that maybe perception of pharma companies has improved with things like COVID and the vaccine development, but it doesn't seem to be particularly significant. Um, but I do feel there's a real lack of understanding by by the public of of how pharma works and the value we can bring. You know, and that natural scepticism, I really hope, will will fade over time. And in terms of public perception, I know that's something we've picked up recently within the magazine, and it, it is it is an area that that is improving. But as you say, something that needs to continue to be worked on. Um, moving on, can can you tell us about the digital transformation that's taken place in medical affairs during COVID nineteen, and, and which aspects you anticipate will be integrated in the long term? Yeah, absolutely. So 
I guess there's a couple of elements to this in my mind. There's there's the external, it's how things have evolved in terms of our external engagement with the healthcare community, but also how we've transformed our working practices internally as well. Um, externally, we saw, you know, we saw a seismic shift overnight, you know, with COVID. Um, and I, I feel, and I think a lot of people feel that this was a long time coming and actually this made us get on with it and do something different and offer things like medical education um, and the way we interact with healthcare professionals in a different way, which really, we, we as I mentioned, we should have done a long time ago. So that that was a very, that was a very big positive. What we have done certainly at Takeda is we've spoken to healthcare professionals about how given the change that has happened so for example move obviously towards much more virtual interaction virtual web webinars virtual congresses even um you know what do they want to continue in this way or do they want to revert back or are we going to end up with some kind of hybrid and my my perception is that we will end up with some kind of hybrid um it's really clear that they and we really miss the networking element of going to congresses in person, having events, medical education events where people actually come together because the healthcare professionals, they work within their units and they're so busy that they don't necessarily have the time to sit and discuss unless they happen to meet them in a, in a sort of educational event, for example, they don't have time to discuss with clinicians from other centres how they may be managing their patients, you know, what their treatment pathways are like. And that kind of sharing of best practice and knowledge is, I feel, so important for the care of the patients. But we do hear from healthcare professionals that they're not able to do that in the same way because they're logging into a webinar that is, you know, remote and they can't necessarily interact and have a side conversation during coffee. So they are not hearing what is going on elsewhere. And actually, we're not either. So we, from the pharmaceutical industry perspective, can't get an idea necessarily of how practice is evolving. So I think there is there has been this big transformation to online that has a lot of benefits in terms of things like work life balance, people balancing children at home versus going away to congresses, etc. But actually, the face-to-face -face networking, I feel, is still really important. And I do think there will be a real a real place for that in the future. Um, from, from an internal perspective, we've obviously become much more effective at working remotely. We've reduced our things like our international travel dramatically, which I see as being hugely important for both work-life balance, but also for the environment. So I think, you know, the discussion now will naturally fall to how much we need internally also to engage face to face and how much of this can remain to be to be done online. Um, so that's, I guess, the, the bit that we're going to have to grapple with over the next few months and years. It's really interesting to get your insights there and, and I guess how in your team, but beyond how the world moves to, I guess, a, a more hybrid model. Um, how, how do you see the role of, of medical affairs changing them beyond this and, and, and growing in the future? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion around around this and there has been for some for some years. We've seen we're seeing an evolution in the model from the more traditional sales model um sort of very much supported by medical affairs but not really led by medical affairs um 
And I think we are moving in a direction which is for some of the reasons we've already discussed, which is maybe more where medical affairs is taking more of a leadership function. And I really hope that we we continue to see that. I mean, I, I myself aim to transition as part of my development plan into commercial roles in the future. Um, and my perception is that there's a lot more medical um, associates, so people with some sort of medical background, whether that be a medical degree, having worked in a medical function, maybe a farm pharmacist, um, moving into more senior management and commercial roles. And when you see that transition happening, there's a much greater appreciation of what medical affairs offers and the value it brings. So I think companies are seeing that actually having people who have done different types of roles within the industry is actually really valuable. And I do feel that will help us move towards a model which is probably much more led by a medical function, although there will always be a place for commercial functions. And I, I'm always the first to say to my team, if there's any reticence about anything that the commercial team is doing, that actually, you know, we, we need the commercial side of the business. We, we need to be, you know, we need to be developing the drugs and, and making them safe, but we also need to be selling them to be able to fund the next round of innovation and research. So every role is incredibly important. It's just the balance of, of which part of the company, um, you know, is maybe has the leadership kind of element, which I think is important. And I definitely see medical affairs taking more of a leadership role in the future. Thank you for, for that. And, and again, really, really fascinating. Um, talking in terms of kind of leadership, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've, you've obviously held many leadership roles and um, have spoken about your interest in nurturing high performance teams. How do you encourage personal development in the teams that, that you lead? Yeah, so this is this is a real passion of mine. It's it's funny because I, you know, I, I came into the industry as a as a medic and I guess a scientist. And r really, what I realised quite quickly, and certainly have continued to realise, is that actually encouraging people's personal development and and for me, leadership and management is a huge passion. I guess the first thing to say is that I've been incredibly fortunate to have some very good managers and mentors and coaches, both internal to companies I've worked in and external, that have worked with me over the last sort of seven years on my own development journey. And I think having seen the impact that that, that management and coaching has had on me has really made me feel like that's something I want to help others with if I can. And what I, I often feel that the nature of the type of individuals who go into medical roles is that they are they like sort of a certain level of certainty, a certain level of detail, and they can be quite narrow in their scope just naturally because they're used to sort of dealing with particularly scientific and medical fields. And actually, this can stop them thinking a bit bigger picture about what they can achieve in their careers and what they can actually think about attaining in the future. So I think it's really important to try and help open their minds if we can. So I guess how how I do it is I do it both within my team, my medical team, but also, you know, recently I was asked to mentor someone within the commercial organization who was one of the sales team. Um, so I'm I'm very open to doing it, you know, across across the board, wherever it's helpful. But I I have development discussions really, really early with people. And I think sometimes it puts them off a little bit because I tend to meet them and I say, well, let's have our first one to one. They say, right, when are we going to have our first development conversation? 
And I'm very quick to tell them that I'm not trying to get rid of them from the job. I'm not trying to move them on. But if they want to develop and succeed, then I need to know where they want to go towards because I need to try and help them find opportunities to, to meet their, you know, meet any gaps that they need to fill, for example. So I have early and ideally fairly regular development discussions with everyone who's a sort of direct report within my team and anyone else who wants to. And one of the first things I do is really think about is about the an energy sort of flow exercise, if you like, which sounds a, a little bit ethereal, but it's essentially looking back at their careers and understanding what their motivators and drivers are, but also what are their demotivators. And it, I think this is often really helpful. It doesn't take long, but it really helps people to identify like, oh, gosh, yes, I really liked that company, for example, where there was a really good team culture. And actually, it wasn't really about the product. It was more about the fact that I had lots of opportunity for development, for example. And then I, I, I didn't like this other company because of X, Y, Z. So I think that's really helpful. And then I tend to tend to task them in the first session with, with doing a 10 year plan. And again, they often they often feel like this is like, no, there's no way I can come up with a 10 year plan in the next 30 minutes. And usually we do. I've never had anyone where we haven't got to a good place, even quite quickly. And, and what I do is I really try and get them to look at where I often ask them a, a, a fairly simple question. I say, if you are interviewing in 10 years time for a job and someone asks you to give them a rundown of their of your cv what do you want to be able to say about yourself and they can answer that straight away so they start telling me oh i want to have done a range of products over the life cycle i, I maybe want to have done some management i want to have worked in multiple different companies and so then you can start building a list very quickly of what they need to do essentially to achieve that but I think the other part that's really important to me and people often comment that they've never had a manager ask them this before is that I, I always ask them personally if they want to share what they want from life. So in 10 years time, what do they envisage themselves doing? Where do they envisage themselves being? Do they see themselves abroad? What does their other half want to do? Do they think they want children? You know, because actually these are important when planning your career and your development, because you have to take these things into account. If someone wants to have two children and they want to have time off with them, then maybe that's a couple of years where they're not going to be as active in the workplace. So I ask both the personal and the professional, and then we kind of work back and go through what kind of roles might give them and fill those gaps, give them the experience they need and fill the gaps that they have in their sort of aspirational career journey. And usually I find that works out really well. And by the end of, as I say, 30 to 40 minutes, you've got actually a fairly clear plan. And it's based on skills acquisition, not just on what role they should do next, because often that's quite hard for someone to visualise. So, yes, that's the kind of approach I guess I take. And it's generally seems to work really well. I've had some really good successes with people where they have had a conversation like that and then they've really just gone for it and started to fill their skills gaps and transitioned then quite naturally to much bigger roles or to roles that fill the gaps that they've already identified. Thank you, Emily. There's some really interesting ideas there and, and takeaways for our listeners and some very fascinating insights. Um, in, in terms of the, the teams and what you've talked about there and, and the individuals, is there, is there anything in terms of bringing individuals together as a team that you will also do along alongside that? Yes, absolutely. So 
I've tried to create a culture within my existing team and, and prior teams that development your own personal development takes as high a priority as the as the sort of I guess science side of things um, so when we have team meetings um, as a combined oncology team we will often have um, a bit around development for example where we have maybe you know we've had someone from our learning and development team come and talk to us about development so that they're not they're not just hearing it from me, essentially, um, that there are, there's someone independent is, is, is coming to them um, and, you know, giving them a, a real idea of why it's important to focus on their development. We've done some good activities there in terms of motivators um, around, you know, the importance of development planning, how to write development goals, etc. So, yes, yeah, so we tend to do things within the within the team, uh, within a team meeting setting. And for me, even just having that on the agenda is really important because it shows that actually, no matter how much other stuff we've got to get through, which is often a lot, actually personal development is really important because the biggest thing you often hear about personal development is, I just don't really have the time and I keep setting aside time to think about it and then it gets busy. And so actually, if you have a team meeting and you set aside time for them to do it, then there's not really much choice. So I do find that 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 is really helpful. Um, so, yes. And then obviously they're also supported. Certainly at Takeda, there's been a good focus on, on personal development and personal development planning. And so they're also supported by some of the wider um, you know, organisation initiatives as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And, and really fascinating subject and, and high performing teams is something that we're going to be returning to in, in future episodes of this podcast. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today, Emily. It's been absolutely great to, to speak with you. Um, that's all we have time for this week. But don't forget to check out our digital magazine at www.emg-gold.com for plenty of articles, interviews and news on everything and anything related to pharma. And remember to tune in every Tuesday for more insights from great thought leaders like Emily in and outside the industry. So thank you for listening. Take care and see you next time on the EMG Gold podcast.